This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In December of 1945, five planes on a routine training mission exercise never made it back to their Fort Lauderdale naval base. Three rescue planes were sent to look for them. Only two came back. This is the Bermuda Triangle, a patch of ocean between Florida, Puerto Rico, and Bermuda. If you enjoy these episodes, you should check out the Unexplained Mysteries podcast. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Follow Unexplained Mysteries free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. On the afternoon of December 5th, 1945, at 2.10 p.m., five planes took off on a routine training mission from the Fort Lauderdale Naval Base. Lieutenant Charles Taylor was the commander on board the lead plane. Everyone else was a student. The plan was to fly 56 miles due east to conduct practice bombing missions. The flying conditions were ideal. Taylor knew the route and had flown it before. The planes should have been back at 4 p.m. But at 5 p.m., it became clear that something was wrong. The planes were not where they were supposed to be. In his last radio transmission, Taylor said his compasses were useless. They were spinning around like crazy. By 6 p.m., all the plane's signals had vanished from the base's radar. Fearing the worst, the naval base dispatched three more planes for a search and rescue mission. This would prove to be disastrous, for one of the rescue planes would explode in midair, killing everyone on board. When it was all over, these unanswered questions would haunt everyone at the naval base. Where had the planes gone? How had they simply disappeared? No one knew it yet, but a single miscalculation took them into an area of open ocean where ships and planes were known to vanish, the Bermuda Triangle. In life, there's so much we don't know, But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. You can listen to previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of ParCast's other shows wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Thursday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, 
on Twitter at Parcast Network and at Parcast.com. Some of you have been asking us how you can help support the show. Well, if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This week, we'll be investigating the Bermuda Triangle. It's a triangular section of ocean spanning the area between Miami, Puerto Rico, and Bermuda. You wouldn't think a simple triangle could be so menacing or frightening. Well, you'd be wrong. Over the years, the Bermuda Triangle has developed a treacherous reputation. Ships are swallowed up, experienced pilots lose their way, compasses go haywire, planes vanish mid-flight, never to be heard from again. But people still travel through the triangle. They have to. The triangle occupies well-trafficked air and shipping routes. There's no way around it. In today's episode, we'll look at terrifying and inexplicable mysteries that originated within the triangle. Next week, we'll delve into the possible explanations behind the triangle and try to conclude whether there's an explanation that makes sense or if the triangle is really cursed. Our story begins in 1492. It had been a long three months at sea. The navigator's face was already worn with stress. He rubbed his sleepless eyes, dark circles underneath. His compass, which he desperately needed to safely continue the journey, was spinning like crazy. The compass could not settle on what direction was north. Its needle twitched like a panicky, dying animal. The navigator checked with the man at the wheel, and they both went to their captain, Cristobal Colon, with the bad news. Colon groaned. He'd been hoping to keep the information about the compass from his skittish crew. Their nerves were frayed enough from the three-month voyage into unknown territory. Colon had first noticed the compasses skipping earlier in September. The ship had multiple compasses, all of their needles twitching back and forth. At first, he chalked it up to a fluke. But as the ships continued their journey east, the problem got worse. The compass needles started moving faster. In some cases, a needle never landed on north. It just kept spinning. Cologne realized he'd have to use his eyes and instinct to navigate the rest of the way. And then, on September 15, 1492, something even stranger happened. According to the ship's surviving logs, the sailors saw a strange fiery light in the sky, a circular shape rising up out of the ocean. A good omen? Or something darker and more ominous? The ship was the Santa Maria, and Cristobal Colón is better known by his English name, Christopher Columbus. The Santa Maria and its two sister ships, as everyone knows, arrived in the New World intact. With the massive success of Columbus's voyage, most people forgot about the skipping compass and the strange lights in the sky. But what his crew didn't know was that on September 15th, while the fiery light lit up the sky and the compasses were going haywire, the Santa Maria and its two sister ships were only three days' voyage away from San Salvador. This placed them directly in the area that would later be known as the Bermuda Triangle. Columbus couldn't have known it, but from then on, many navigators who traveled through the triangle would find their compasses spinning wildly just like his had. Although Columbus had noted the strange shape that rose out of the sky in his captain's logs, he quickly moved on to more important things. 
leaving the question, what was that strange shape? A very early encounter with a UFO? Could Columbus have had a close encounter in the Bermuda Triangle? There's no official definition for the Bermuda Triangle's boundaries, also called the Devil's Triangle. But most people who study the triangle use some generally accepted borders. Trace two straight lines from the southern tip of Florida, one northeast to Bermuda, and the other southeast to Puerto Rico. The open ocean in between makes your triangle. Strange events happen there. Storms spring up out of nowhere. Ships disappear without a trace. After Columbus and his crew's strange encounter, the Bermuda Triangle would go quiet for the next 348 years, as far as we know. It was not until 1840 that the next agreed-upon Bermuda Triangle incident would strike. But this wouldn't just be a compass going crazy or mysterious lights at sea. A ship would set sail, but never arrive, and an entire crew would vanish. In the spring of 1840, the French vessel Rosalie left the port city of Hamburg, Germany, sailing along a common route. They would take the Elbe River all the way to the North Sea, then across the Atlantic Ocean to Havana. It carried valuable cargo to trade, including wine, dried fruits, and silks. It also had several animals on board, canaries, chickens, ducks, and one cat. The captain had sailed this route before, and the crew were experienced. Nothing was heard from the Rosalie for three months. This was normal for ships at the time. No one had any reason to worry. But then came a letter from the Bahamas, dated August 27, 1840. The London Times printed an article as soon as they received the letter on November 6th. The sailors of another ship, the Ellen Austin, had discovered the Rosalie, intact, floating in the Sargasso Sea. But the Rosalie's entire crew, including the captain, had vanished. Even more strange, the animals on the Rosalie were still on board, though the canaries had nearly starved to death. The hull of the ship was undamaged. Her sails were still up. Where had the crew gone? They couldn't have drowned. The ship was still floating and structurally sound. No one in Havana or Bermuda seemed to know where the crew was. All anyone knew was that the Rosalie had never arrived at port. It was an eerie sight. Ships sank, but ships still able to sail weren't just abandoned. They were worth too much. Some speculated that the crew had abandoned ship, but that made no sense. They stood to gain a great deal financially from the voyage. Others felt it was likely that disease had ravaged the crew, but in that case, their dead bodies would still be aboard. And there was one more unsettling note. One chronicler of the event, years later, noted that the cat on board looked smug. Did the cat know something the humans didn't? With the dawn of the 20th century, incidents in the Bermuda Triangle began to happen more frequently. And in 1918, the triangle sucked in George Worley, captain of the USS Cyclops. The USS Cyclops was the pride of Philadelphia when it was built in 1910. It was a Proteus-class collier, a ship designed to carry cargo in bulk, extremely useful for transporting coal and other fuel. 
When the U.S. entered World War I, it was immediately called into service, patrolling up and down the East Coast. Later in the war, the Cyclops started making supply runs to the coast of France. Captain George Worley was not a superstitious man. He ran a tight ship. Too tight, some said. He was notorious for screaming at sailors under his command with even the slightest provocation. And Worley had a secret. His real name was Johann Friedrich Wickman. He had been born and raised in Germany, but had snuck into the U.S. as a teenager in 1878. It couldn't have been easy being German while the U.S. fought a cataclysmic war against his homeland. But however ruthless he may have been, Worley knew that the safety of his men depended on precision and order. There was no such thing as bad luck, only bad judgment. But to an outside observer, Worley's impeccable track record no wrecks, no serious mechanical trouble, and very few attacks would have looked lucky. The Cyclops got new orders on January 9, 1918. There were British ships off the coast of Brazil, and they needed refueling. Captain Worley had something to prove. He knew that if anyone found out he was a German immigrant, he could lose his captainship. But no one was going to question his loyalty to America. His crew was unhappy with him, his harsh and erratic manner, his frequent drinking, the way he'd walk around the ship in long john underwear. But despite his eccentricities, Worley made sure everything was by the book on his missions. The Cyclops got the British ships refueled on time. The Cyclops even got an official thank you from the Commander-in-Chief of the Pacific after completing their most recent trip to Brazil. Now came the second half of the ship's mission. The U.S. needed manganese ore to make guns and bullets for the war. And so, while stationed in Rio, 11,000 tons of the ore were loaded onto the Cyclops destined for Baltimore. While the ship was docked in Rio de Janeiro, a crew member noticed that the starboard engine had a cracked cylinder and was not working. The ship would still be able to travel shorter distances without repairing it and should have been fully capable of sailing to Baltimore intact. It would just need repairs upon arrival. In late February, the ship left Rio de Janeiro for Baltimore. But Worley was concerned. The ship was slightly lower in the water than it should have been, which meant it might be overloaded. So he had the crew dock the Cyclops in nearby Barbados, just to be sure it wouldn't sink. March 4th, 1918. The Cyclops left Barbados with 306 crew members aboard. Its planned route took it from Barbados, which is 583 miles southeast of Puerto Rico, towards the Virginia coastline, straight through the middle of the Bermuda Triangle. The Cyclops was due in the port of Baltimore on March 13th. It never arrived. Communications in 1918 were very limited, and when it became clear something bad had happened to the Cyclops, many feared the worst. Perhaps it was sabotaged by a U-boat. This became a popular narrative after the Navy investigated, and Captain Worley's German roots were made public. Many believed he had committed treason. There's no evidence to suggest that was the case. But to conclusively determine what had happened to the Cyclops, you would have needed to see its wreckage. And the Cyclops left nothing behind. It hadn't even sent out a distress call, which you would have expected from a sinking ship. Other ships were following the same route, 
but none of them ever spotted any signs of wreckage or debris. As 1918 dragged on, no one found a thing. No pieces of the boat, no floating crew, no bodies. The Cyclops, a large ship with over 300 people on board, had simply disappeared. Was the Cyclops simply a victim of an unrecorded sudden storm? Did Captain Worley finally run into bad luck he couldn't plan for? Or were darker forces lurking beneath the depths? After this short break, we'll continue circling the Bermuda Triangle. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. The Cyclops incident of 1918 quickly faded from the zeitgeist, especially after the war ended in November of that year. It was the largest single non-combat loss of U.S. life in World War I, but it wasn't necessarily unusual. Ships sink. Storms happen. But the disappearance of the Cyclops, it would seem, was only the beginning. The next major incident in the Bermuda Triangle would come just after the end of World War II, on December 5, 1945. Lieutenant Charles Taylor was set to lead his students on a practice bombing run over open ocean, flying five planes called Avengers. Collectively, the planes were identified as Flight 19, a flight that would become infamous in Bermuda Triangle lore. Taylor had over 2,500 hours of flight experience in planes of this type. The weather that afternoon was described as favorable. Now, in 1945, Pilots didn't have the instruments they do now. They had to navigate largely by tracking how far they'd gone and in what direction. But you don't get to be a flight instructor at a naval base without having some experience doing this. The planes took off and made it to the practice bombing area without incident. The practice bomb runs went as planned. At 3 p.m., a radio transmission was heard from one of the pilots asking permission to drop the final bomb. The training was over. It was time to head home. And this is where things get, well, strange. The base in Fort Lauderdale captured a radio transmission. A crew member on one of the planes asked that plane's captain, naval student John Powers, what their location was. Powers replied that he didn't know. Quote, we must have gotten lost after that last turn, end quote. Their instructor, Charles Taylor, had also noted something odd. His compasses had stopped working. The needles were spinning like crazy, just like what had happened to Christopher Columbus in 1492. Taylor immediately notified Fort Lauderdale. Taylor might not have had working compasses, but he did have a clue as to his approximate location. He indicated he was somewhere over the Florida Keys, a string of islands southwest of Miami. So the traffic controller was able to give Taylor clear directions. Fly north towards Miami, and he and the other planes would make their way back home. Taylor headed north, but he wasn't getting any closer to Miami. In fact, 
the plane seemed to be heading further out to sea. By 4.45 p.m., it had started to get dark, and the naval base began to have trouble receiving Taylor's communication. Naval radio operators tried to reach the other four planes, but they could only pick up the occasional word followed by static. And then, silence. Either the planes were losing power, running into interference, or something else was at play. A few minutes before 6 p.m., the naval base finally got a fix on Flight 19. But their location didn't make sense. It was east of New Smyrna Beach, Florida, 250 miles north of Miami and much further over the ocean. If Taylor had followed the suggested flight plan, he would have been west and nearly home. At 6.20 p.m., dark clouds were rolling in. With no word from either Taylor or the students, the base dispatched three planes, a Dumbo flying boat and two Martin Mariners to hopefully reach the planes and escort them back to safety. Even if the planes had crash-landed, they might still be able to rescue any survivors. It was dark, a rainstorm had picked up, and now all five Avengers were drastically low on fuel. The Avengers would have had no choice but to make a controlled crash. But none of the rescue planes would get to the suspected crash location of Flight 19 in time. In fact, one of the rescue ships would never get to the crash site at all. All three rescue planes took off at 7.15 p.m. At 7.30 p.m., Mariner number 59225 contacted Fort Lauderdale with a routine message. That was the last anyone heard of it. At 8.15 p.m., a tanker, the SS Gaines Mills, radioed in to Fort Lauderdale. He'd seen a massive explosion in the water. The flames had reached 100 feet high and had burned for 10 long minutes. Mariner number 59225 had exploded midair. The captain of the Gaines Mills, Shauna Stanley, had searched for survivors, but none could be found. The Mariner was gone. Six planes were claimed by the Bermuda Triangle that day, and it would be decades before anyone figured out what had actually happened. And the rest of the 1940s would bring even more mysterious disappearances and destruction within the Triangle. In the next four years, from 1946 to 1950, a dozen more planes would disappear without a trace. Not so much as a fuselage, a wing, or a black box could ever be recovered. The Bermuda Triangle, it would seem, was only getting hungrier. As the 1940s rolled on, the disappearances of planes flying through the Bermuda Triangle began to add up. On July 3, 1947, a Douglas C-54 went down in a storm off the Florida coast. The wreckage was never found. January 30, 1948, an Avro Tudor Star Tiger with six crew members and 25 passengers left from Santa Maria Airport headed for Bermuda. It disappeared without a trace. December 27, 1948. A Douglas DC-3 headed from San Juan, Puerto Rico to Miami, Florida, vanished. 32 people were on board. January 30, 1948. An Avro Tudor Star Tiger with six crew and 25 passengers left from Santa Maria Airport headed for Bermuda. It disappeared without a trace. December 27, 1948. 
a Douglas DC-3 headed from San Juan, Puerto Rico to Miami, Florida, vanished. 32 people were on board. January 17, 1949. Another Avro Tudor, this one a star aerial, was headed from Kindley Field in Bermuda to Kingston, Jamaica. The plane never arrived. That's four crashes or disappearances in a year and a half. People started to notice. And in June of 1950, something happened that made one intrepid Associated Press reporter start putting the pieces together. The trigger was a ship named the SS Sandra. It was a sturdy ship, 350 feet long. It left the port of Savannah, Georgia, headed for Venezuela. The Sandra was following a familiar, well-traveled shipping lane. It was carrying insecticide meant to help Venezuela battle malaria by targeting mosquitoes. There were 12 crew members on board when the ship left Savannah. The Sandra was seemingly on course. There was just one problem. Although the route was familiar, it led straight through the Bermuda Triangle. And then, like an increasing number of ships and planes before it, the Sandra vanished. It was like the Triangle was performing a twisted evil magic trick. Here's a ship. Now, watch it disappear. Finally, a curious journalist noticed. E.V.W. Jones, an AP writer based out of Miami, asked himself how many ships and planes had disappeared within the Bermuda Triangle. He started digging and digging. And digging. He flagged incident after incident. What was going on? Experienced pilots, competent captains, tough and seaworthy crew. There should not have been this many disappearances in so small a geographic area. Jones' research never reached a definitive conclusion, and he was slow to make assumptions. He was a reporter. He lived in a world of facts, truth, what he could document. So he collected evidence and laid out the facts as he saw them. And on September 17, 1950, the Associated Press printed his article, The Sea's Puzzles Still Baffle Men in Push-Button Age. Jones could see that the disappearances were clearly connected, but he had no way to unify them. So he ran the article, hoping someone else might connect the dots. And sure enough, a freelance writer was ready to take up the case. George X. Sand was intrigued by Jones' article. Sand built on Jones' work and tracked down more unusual disappearances, accidents, and unexplained events. Two years later, in 1952, he wrote an article for Fate magazine with the title, Sea Mystery at Our Back Door. But the article failed to attract much attention. One of the reasons for this was that the triangle was quiet after Sand's article came out. There were no major incidents for the rest of the 1950s, nothing to spur the public's imagination. It was almost as if the triangle knew it was being watched. Did it? Was some strange intelligence at work seeking out ships and planes that dared to cross its waters? Was this the work of vengeful petty gods? No one had an explanation. But reporter Vincent Gaddis, based in Elkhart, Indiana, was intrigued. So in February 1964, he wrote the first article to give the Bermuda Triangle its name in the pulp magazine Argosy. Gaddis tried, but he also couldn't figure out why so many ships and planes were vanishing. 
The sheer number of disappearances didn't make sense. And where was the wreckage? How is it possible that none of the searches for the crashed planes and sunken ships ever found anything? Vincent Gaddis kept investigating and expanded his findings into a book, Invisible Horizons, released in 1965. And just after the book came out, two more planes mysteriously vanished. On June 9, 1965, a U.S. Air Force flying boxcar went missing somewhere off the coast of Florida. In this one case, a small amount of debris washed ashore on the beach of Gold Rock Key on Nassau Island, just west of the Bahamas. And later that same year, on December 6th, a small plane with one pilot and one passenger simply up and vanished while flying from Fort Lauderdale to Grand Bahama Island. As with most of the other disappearances, no wreckage was ever found. It was as if it had simply been erased from the Earth. Why was this happening? The Bermuda Triangle didn't have any external factors that should make it more dangerous than any other patch of ocean. People who studied the phenomenon started to raise possible explanations. Of course, if science can't explain something, other explanations appear. One prevailing theory developed, saying that the Bermuda Triangle was a place where the laws of physics just ceased to exist. Another popular theory blamed aliens. Perhaps it was either hostile aliens destroying planes and ships they believed were somehow on their turf, or benevolent aliens rescuing sailors and pilots moments before their death. There was a third theory that gained traction in the mid-1960s, A long-dead psychic named Edgar Cayce had made several predictions in a series of books. Cayce died in 1945. He had been dead for more than 20 years, but many people still followed his work. Cayce had written decades ago that the lost mythical continent of Atlantis would be found in the year 1968, that it would rise up out of the waters. Several of Casey's readers believed that the Bermuda Triangle was somehow connected to Atlantis. Maybe Atlantis was in the Bermuda Triangle, and all these disappearances were just a prequel to Atlantis re-emerging from the ocean. Still others believed there were supernatural explanations for the disappearances, and they were about to have two more pieces of ammunition for their theory. In 1968, the London Sunday Times was sponsoring a race around the world in a yacht. Businessman Donald Crowhurst designed and sold a cutting-edge nautical navigation system called the Navigator. The device worked, but Crowhurst's business was failing. It was too niche a device to successfully sustain the entire business, and Crowhurst didn't have the business experience to successfully market his device to a wider international audience. Crowhurst reasoned that if he entered the race and did well in it, using his device, he could save his business. Every ship in the race was reporting its location to Britain during the months-long race. November and December came and went, and Crowhurst appeared to be doing well, even taking the lead in December 1968. But as 1969 progressed, he started to run into trouble. And on July 10, 1969, his boat was found drifting in the mid-Atlantic within range of the Triangle. Crowhurst was not on board. Even more strange, his navigator had sent locations to Britain, indicating that he had circumnavigated the globe. 
even though that was clearly untrue. Given everything that was on the line for Crowhurst, his disappearance would seem mysterious, and he wouldn't be the only victim of the Triangle that year. Summer 1969 was a big season for the Bermuda Triangle. Although numerous ships and planes had vanished or crashed within its confines, no landmass within its borders had ever suffered an inexplicable disaster. Until now. There's a small island in the Bahamas called Great Isaac Key. It's the northernmost Bahamian island, only 70 miles east of Miami, Florida. One of Great Isaac Key's most notable features is a lighthouse. It's over 150 feet high and protects ships sailing into Florida from its rocky coast. It's been there since 1859, and its light flashes every 15 seconds without fail. But the lighthouse couldn't protect every ship that passed its way. In the late 1800s, legend has it there was a shipwreck upon its coast that left only one survivor, a baby. The baby's despairing mother is rumored to still haunt the island. Natives of the Bahamas call her the Grey Lady, and they say you can see and hear her every time there's a full moon. Not to be confused with the Grey Lady who haunted Rhythm Castle, which we learned about on the Parcast Media podcast, Haunted Places. So Great Isaac Key already had a supernatural reputation. Throughout the 19th and 20th century, lighthouse keeping was a respected and honorable job. The keepers tended to value the work they did, protecting ships from rocky coasts and ensuring their safe passage. People who took on the job at Great Isaac Key saw it as an almost sacred calling and were widely respected on the other Bahamian islands. It wasn't a job anyone would just up and quit. In 1969, Great Isaac Key had two lighthouse keepers who worked in tandem. They'd been working there for several years. And although hurricane season could get bad, they were pros, prepared for whatever the sea could throw at them. But they hadn't counted on one thing. Their lighthouse was in the Bermuda Triangle. Hurricane Anna swirled through and struck Great Isaac Key on August 1st, 1969. Although winds were strong, the lighthouse had weathered worse. But three days later, on August 4th, when the weekly supply boat showed up to deliver food and collect mail, the delivery people discovered that while the lighthouse was still fully operational and the keeper's quarters were still fully furnished, the lighthouse keepers had vanished. The supply boat crew searched the island, but couldn't find a trace of the keepers. They notified Bahamian police, who hurried to the island via boat and expanded the search. But nothing was ever found. Like so many ships and planes before them, the lighthouse keepers had simply disappeared. The triangle was starting to heat up again. Only two years later, in 1971, came another incident that would puzzle Bermuda Triangle scholars for decades. When the respected, well-guarded American naval ship, the USS John F. Kennedy, traveled into the Bermuda Triangle on a routine voyage, it would find itself at the center of one of the strangest Triangle stories yet. The events on board the John F. Kennedy would change the way we thought about the Bermuda Triangle forever. This time, witnesses would survive.
We'll recount the ship's bizarre journey after these brief messages. And now, back to the story. 1971. The USS Kennedy had been conducting a readiness exercise in the Caribbean. It was set to make its way back to Norfolk, Virginia, where the crew would enjoy a much-deserved 30-day shore leave. But its route would take it straight through the Bermuda Triangle. The following account comes firsthand from sailor and communications operator Jim Kopf. Kopf, who was serving on the Kennedy at the time, was responsible for monitoring eight teletype machines, which would print the fleet broadcasts. In his published recollection, Kopf doesn't tell us exactly when, in 1971, this occurred. Kopf described the communications center as a room packed with devices to send and receive signals. This was the nerve center of the ship, and he was clear about the time everything began, 8.30 p.m. The four teletype machines on the top row of the communications array were called primaries. The bottom four were called alternates. The teletype machines were mechanical typewriters that the Navy used to send communications from ship to shore or between ships. These devices were ordinarily very reliable. Keeping them running would have been a top priority for Kopf and his crewmates. But at 8.30 p.m., they began to, in Kopf's words, type garbage. Kopf immediately got on the intercom to alert facilities control. But he was told that communications were down all over the ship. The task group operator reported that his circuit had also gone out. And then someone got on the intercom and yelled out words that sent a chill down his spine. There is something hovering over the ship. The next voice was even more panicked. One sailor shouted, It's God! It's the end of the world! The six operators in the comm center hurried to the flight deck. As they burst out onto the open deck, they saw something none of them could explain. Very low in the sky above the ship, at a distance Kopf estimated to be no higher than 500 feet, was a large glowing orange sphere. The men's eyes did not deceive them. They all saw it, hovering low above the ship, unmoving with no detectable sign of support. Kopf estimated the diameter of the orange sphere to be 200 to 300 feet across. Although the sphere didn't move, it let out mysterious pulses, one after the other. The light suddenly glowed brighter, and with each pulse, small shock waves passed over the ship. The sailors could feel their bones rumble. Those above deck could hear a small buzzing behind their eyes, like it was coming from inside their skulls. Nineteen seconds passed. Kopf's heart hammered in his chest. And then the battle station siren sounded. The six communications men hurried back inside to take their positions in the communications center. The next 20 minutes were the longest of Kopf's life. He'd been on this assignment for more than a year and hadn't seen anything like this, ever. What was that sphere? How had it stayed suspended in the air? And then, after 20 minutes, a clattering in the comm center made the men jump. It was the teletypes. They were working again. Clear, readable messages were coming through. But Kopf noticed something strange. Ordinarily, someone on the ship would have immediately notified the naval base about an event this dramatic. But no one was sending any reports about the incident, despite the fact that the ship had gone to battle stations. 
Kopp checked in with a friend of his, a radar operator in the ship's combat information center. The operator confirmed to Kopp that the radar screen's displays, instead of showing the typical dark screen with white dots, had glowed completely white for the whole incident. The operator had never seen that before. And like Columbus and Flight 19, the ship's highly calibrated, precise, top-of-the-line compasses had all stopped working. One of the men picked up another piece of news. A lookout on the bridge who'd been exposed to the sphere for longer than them had to be sedated after the incident. Kopf checked in with another friend on board who confirmed that no electronics in his area were working. At one point during the sphere's appearance, the ship had tried to launch two F-4 Phantom bomber planes, and they would not start. Although everyone's nerves were rattled, no one was hurt during the incident. But rumors spread across the ship in the next few days. Kopf couldn't confirm this, but he even heard a rumor that three men in trench coats had visited the ship to interview witnesses. A few days passed as the ship continued on its way to Norfolk, Virginia. And then something unusual happened. The ship's captain and executive officers made a rare appearance on the ship's closed-circuit TV system. They had an important message for the crew. The captain congratulated the men on their training exercises. They had done very well. He just had one reminder for the crew. Quote, Certain events that took place aboard a naval combatant ship are classified and not to be discussed with anyone without a need to know. End quote. The USS Kennedy got off easy. Unlike so many ships that had passed through the Triangle, the ship made it back to Virginia without any further issues. But the event is one of the most mysterious to occur in the Triangle. It's hard to come up with a rational explanation for what exactly that sphere was. A few years later, Kopf ran into the ship's radar operator at a screening. They'd gone to see, of all things, close encounters of the third kind. Kopf asked the radar operator if he remembered the glowing sphere from their mission. The operator turned pale and said he never wanted to talk about it again. Jim Kopf kept his word and didn't reveal the incident to the public until years later when he retired. What was that orange sphere in the sky? And why was the Navy so desperate to hide it? The bizarre incident of the glowing orange sphere had not yet been made public in 1974 when linguist Charles Berlitz released his nonfiction book, The Bermuda Triangle. Nevertheless, the book was the first to truly strike a chord with a public desperate for answers. It sold almost 20 million copies. Like Kopf, Berlitz had served in the military. He'd been in the Army and military intelligence. Berlitz used his military background to analyze the patterns of unexplained phenomena that kept occurring in the triangle. Berlitz explored several theories in the book, but he had a compelling explanation for the disappearances. Electromagnetic disturbances were interfering with the planes and ships and weakening their structural integrity, causing them to essentially rapidly break apart. Berlitz called it disintegration. Charles Berlitz would expand his theories in a follow-up book. Other authors quickly responded to Berlitz's theorizing, both for and against. One year after Berlitz's book came out, commercial pilot and amateur researcher Larry Kush did some investigating of his own. 
Kush responded with a book that had a very different view of events in the Bermuda Triangle. Berlitz had prominently cited Donald Crowhurst's mysterious disappearance from his boat in 1969 as one of the great mysteries of the Triangle. But Larry Kush had other ideas. His investigation started with what had really happened to Donald Crowhurst, but quickly spread to the mysteries of Flight 19 back in 1945. He was determined to be the one to finally unmask the Bermuda Triangle. Columbus, Crowhurst, the Rosalie, Flight 19, the USS Kennedy, countless others forever lost at sea. Lives were at stake. If the Bermuda Triangle couldn't be solved, ships and planes would continue to vanish and hundreds of people would die. Next week, we'll dive into the mythology behind the legend. Why the Triangle has turned compasses into pinwheels since the time of Columbus, what happened to doomed sailor Donald Crowhurst, and why the Triangle seems to swallow up everything, including evidence. If you're looking for more Unexplained Mysteries, you can find us as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Many listeners ask how to help the show. If you enjoy the show, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Greg Macklin and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. 